0: I have a really difficult time picturing a life for myself where I would be happy any
1: other way. So it's almost like I I don't have a choice but to be an entrepreneur. Although we might not like to admit it, statistically, we are all wrong far more than we're right. Entrepreneurs are no exception. Nine out of 10 companies fail at least, yet they all bet on the slim chance of getting it right once. But the mindset of a serial entrepreneur has one big benefit. For them, entrepreneurship isn't win or lose, it's a learning process. After scaling one company by 4,000%, what did we learn that could be applied to our other projects? And that's what we'll learn from today's guest, and much more, because we don't have to be entrepreneurs ourselves to put their lessons into our playbooks. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode seven of season two. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury. And for the next half an hour or so, we are going to be diving into a mental model. And specifically, the model we're looking at is the one we discussed last week, The Life's Playbook. If you haven't listened to last week's episode already, we dive deep into the theory behind what we're going to be discussing today. And today is that application of a better tool that is going to help you make sharper decisions with the goal of helping you understand yourself and the world slightly better. Today, we're going to give you a way to think about your very best learning and how to cultivate that across the span of a career or a lifetime and ensuring that we get maximum value from the knowledge that we obtain. This knowledge goes into what we call the life playbook, your life playbook. And building this playbook is one of the big benefits of serial entrepreneurship, as we're going to learn from our guest in just a little bit. But you don't have to be a serial entrepreneur or even an entrepreneur to apply these lessons. And something that might be a relief for some of you, you don't need all the answers either. You don't need to quote unquote know everything. All you need to do is be willing to learn and improve over time. Because what that's going to let us do is apply our versatile playbook to new markets and new opportunities. So who exactly was the inspiration for the Life Playbook? Well, it's time to introduce today's guest. For the last two decades, Charles Covey has established a reputation as the waterproofing expert and a man of his word. Starting in construction as a framing carpenter aged 16... Charles has now built projects all over his home state of Texas. Despite starting with no money, but bringing an unmatched level of determination, Charles and his wife, Alicia, grew their company, Alphapex, almost 4,000% in the last five years and are still scaling rapidly. Charles and Alicia are serial entrepreneurs now running multiple businesses and a team of over 100 people. Using a modern tech based approach, They have established their companies as leaders in safety, innovation, training, and customer service. With a degree in economics from Texas A&M University, Charles tackles challenges head-on with a calm, methodical, forward-thinking approach. He is sought out in the construction and entrepreneurship space for his vision and creative problem-solving ability. His five-year goal is to provide a clear path for each of his 100-plus team members to own their own home. To start our journey with Charles today, we need to begin right at the top of the playbook. And for the benefit of those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, let's just recap the metaphor that helps us explain the playbook, which is the shape of an hourglass. At the top of the hourglass, we have incredibly wide inputs. They allow us to cross pollinate our ideas. We are not selective necessarily in what we consume, but it, we know that it is the intersection of these ideas that are going to spark creativity. The middle section is right in the middle of the hourglass. This is our narrow bottleneck, a bottleneck of focus where we specifically know what problems we're looking to solve and where we can apply our knowledge. And that third and final part is the application, applying the knowledge broadly across a new subset of markets that we may not even necessarily know right now, which is why it's okay to not have all the answers. The Life's Playbook takes broad inputs applied to a specific set of problems and allows you to diversely apply them as and when the time is right. So we need to begin at the start by embracing wide inputs. And for Charles, embracing wide inputs means being involved in a wide variety of companies. At present, Charles is involved in five separate enterprises. These range from Alphapex and his waterproofing, to National Fabco, a 3D printing company, a real estate holdings firm, investments in startups, and even a drone imaging company. As we'll learn very soon, Charles believes that it is this cross-pollination of ideas that gives him a distinct advantage. And it's this ability to cross-pollinate that lets him apply his lessons broadly to other companies. So as we go through this episode, I want you to have in your mind the idea of wide inputs and collecting as widely as possible. But these wide inputs need to be constrained. There's just too much information out there to have it any other way. And that constraint comes through from a very specific set of problems. I think it's very important as entrepreneurs, that we
0: find ways to distill down these problems into very concise little bits, not only for our own use, and so our brain can go to work on them, but for our team and for our clients and for everybody to see how concise it can be. I think that oftentimes entrepreneurs want to solve a lot of problems, but we need to really, really distill down a good example. I'll tell you in our construction business. So we have defined that our clients need three things. They need safety. We have to be safe on their construction job site to the non-negotiable. We have to ensure them that we're going to send our team home safe every day. We have to provide quality installations. We have to do very high quality work so that the buildings don't leak because our stuff is so critically important to the life of the building. And we have to have good communication. And we have decided that these are the three things that our clients need.
1: And then we just really have to do those three things really, really well. Simplifying your problems means knowing exactly where you're going to be moving towards. And in the case of Charles, having safety, quality work, and good communication defined as the three things that his clients need means he can galvanize his team around these core values. If you can articulate the problem that you're solving concisely, odds are other people could actually understand it too. But if you're leaving your problem in the realm of nebulous jargon, unfortunately, you risk being misunderstood. But how do you know which problems are most important to you to solve? Because after all, not all learnings are created equal. It's been a really
0: interesting thing for me to kind of zoom out and look at my life from 30,000 feet and watch that as the pivot point. It's crazy. I never imagined, you know, people talk about these aha moments and I I thought it was a load of crap. I didn't think that was ever going to
1: happen to me, but it did. And it's completely life-changing. For those of you who listened last week, you will recognize what's coming next. This was a scar. This is the most valuable kind of knowledge that we can possibly earn that can only be earned through experience. Scars don't necessarily have to hurt, but they must be earned through the realities of the day-to-day. And for Charles, this was one specific aha moment. For me, it goes way back even to childhood.
0: As long as I can remember, as long as my family can remember... I acted as though I was special, not special as in better than anybody else, but just I knew that I could do something great and I felt greatness within me. And I always thought that I could be the best there was at anything I set my mind to. And I think part of that came from my family instilling those values in me. And part of it was just an innate state of confidence that I always had. And that just developed and grew over time. What happens though, when you have that level of confidence and you can't reach the measurables that tell you that you've done the great things that you want to do, it can be a little bit depressing. It can, be, it can definitely weigh heavy on you. And that was how my 20s went and early 30s. A lot of burden from failures, from things of just not being able to reach the great heights that I knew I was capable of. And I'm certainly not there yet, but we've come a long way in a very short period of time. So then you fast forward, Still struggling, still trying to get some, some traction in my life to accomplish these great things that I know I'm capable of. And in the uh, spring, early summer of 2015, I am on a project, a construction project. And we'd been on this, this was the only job, only big job we had going at the time. And it had been raining for about 40 days. And when you're trying to do construction work in the dirt outside and it's raining for 40 days, you can't do any work. The problem is the bills still come and you still have to feed your family and you make your truck payment and you have to take care of all these other things that are really critical. And there was no money coming in. And I was really, really concerned about how things were going to go. And I was getting pretty down. And I remember going to the job site and we couldn't do any work. The equipment was just sitting. This was equipment that we were paying for rent. And I remember getting in one of the pieces of equipment. It was a a skid steer loader. I sat in it and I sat there for maybe an hour and a half or two hours. I don't even remember how much time passed by. I was just thinking, like, whose fault is it that I'm here? Why don't I have any money? Why is it raining so much? Why can't I accomplish the great things I want to accomplish? Who can I put this on? Because it couldn't be me because I just know that I can accomplish this. And I kept thinking and thinking and thinking. There just wasn't anybody to pin it on. It all came back to me and it was just me. I had made the decisions that put me in this place that caused these problems. I was the problem. Then I realized I was also the solution to this. I had the ability to get out of this scenario by understanding that I'm fully responsible for the decisions that are made in my life, and I'm responsible for where I go. And from that moment on, I utilized that mindset. You know, if somebody in the business makes a mistake, now I view it as it's not their fault; it's my fault because I didn't put a system in place that was strong enough to deal with that mistake. So then that's on me: build a better system. When there's a downturn in the economy and something happens to the business and I don't have as much income, that's on me. I didn't mitigate my risk to accommodate those types of things that we know happen in the marketplace. So when you have the perspective of bearing that weight for the solution, being able to go out and create those solutions and knowing it's just you, it's just on you to create these solutions. It's I found it to be very freeing because I wasn't trying to find somebody to blame. And you have to be You have to maintain this perspective of forgiving yourself because you're an imperfect human and will always be so. And so you have to find ways to, when you do make a mistake, you have to own it and you have to
1: move on very quickly. Charles's level of conviction is a choice that we all can make. Yes, he said he had it from an early age, but there's no reason that we can't cultivate conviction ourselves and belief in ourselves as we have more evidence of our results, which breeds confidence. The problem, of course, is that Charles's belief manifested quite viciously in a form of expectation. And it was this expectation that created a burden for him of not reaching the heights that he felt he was capable of. And what did this do? Well, it generated unnecessary stress from feeling like he couldn't execute at the level he wanted to, from feeling like he didn't have all the answers. But notice where there was a tipping point. When he says, whose fault is it that I'm here, sitting alone with the rain pouring down in that digger, Charles realizes that all the other options needed to be eliminated. And by narrowing the problem down to just himself, Charles creates the ultimate bottleneck for him to focus on, and that's changing his own behavior.
0: There was no excuse for time. There was no excuse for lack of effort. There was no excuse for anything. And ultimately, that created the solutions because I just didn't give myself any
1: excuse for anything. And my brain went to work. It was only when he took complete responsibility for his situation and eliminated all excuses that Charles was liberated. And this links back to episode one of this season on blame and the power of shifting responsibility for changing our lives from others to ourselves. In Charles's words, he was the problem, but he was also the solution. And think about that one piece of knowledge there. Realizing for him that I am the problem, but I'm also the solution. That soundbite only came from earning a massive scar of going through this process. That breakthrough insight came from accepting his imperfection and owning the mistake. But noticed that it was this breakthrough alone that enabled him to pursue his career and his businesses in the way that he has. It is the scar that he earned that allowed him to become the person he is today. In other words. The price that Charles paid with experience was alone well worth it. And of course, it's only once we know our problems that our brains can start working on the solution. I didn't realize it at the time. It was maybe a
0: year later when I looked backwards. I realized, oh my goodness, that's exactly when it occurred and everything has been different since. And so fortunately, I was able to look backwards and see it, but at that particular day, I was really more frustrated than anything that I was the problem because I didn't, want, I didn't want to be the problem. But once I identified that I was a problem, the brain is an amazing machine. It just went to work with finding solutions. So I became the solution without even intending to in, in the short term after that happened.
1: And this point in my mind is quite comforting for me and hopefully comforting for you, which is that at the time, this didn't feel like a big breakthrough for him. Charles's scar only became obvious in hindsight. And let that sink in because lessons can take their time to sink in as well. So it doesn't matter if we don't have the epiphany moment that changes our life every second. Sometimes it's only when we step back from climbing the mountain that we can see how far we've come. So you can ask yourself, are there any major moments that perhaps I overlooked at the time? For me, this was certainly moving to New York City two and a half years ago. I didn't realize at the time what it would be doing to me. But moving to a city where I only knew one person popped the cultural bubble that I'd been living in growing up in the UK. And so what can we learn? Well, we can trust that even though, in Charles's words, we might be frustrated at the time, we can trust that looking backwards, we can connect the dots on our experience. And importantly as well, we need to spend some time identifying the right problem. This links back to our discussion last episode with Richard Feynman's 12 favorite problems and knowing the problems you want to solve. For more on that, go and tune in to episode six of this season. Because let's be honest, the right question or the right problem is going to unlock the answer that we seek. And to see this, we need maybe a cautionary tale for a second. What happens when you don't dial in to a real problem? Because Charles has made that mistake as well before. The type of construction work that I
0: was doing at the time was remodeling and rehabbing apartment complexes. So we'd replace siding and windows and doors on older apartment complexes, something that's very valuable to these companies we were working for. They loved us. However, it's optional for them. People live in the apartment already. It's not a requirement for them to refresh it. So if you hit a downturn and money is at least perceived to be tight, that's the very first thing to go. And so, yeah, our money was the first thing that they chopped off their expense list. And so we went from very, very busy to completely dead overnight.
1: It was stunning. Unfortunately, Charles teaches us the hard way here, the difference between a want and a need. Failed businesses struggle to transition their product into something people actually want. They might create something that the founder thinks is great, but customers don't. And so the question is, what problem are you solving with your work and your business? And is it a problem that you are articulating yourselves, or is this something that you've actually spoken to with the people that you surround yourself with? And since Charles has learned from that mistake, he now brings a slightly different philosophy to how he approaches his businesses. Whatever business you're in, you're in
0: the people business, the human element, and taking care of the people first, worrying about their problems more specifically and I think uh, this goes with clients and with employees, I want to help them be the hero of their story. But we don't worry that much about ourselves. We focus more so on everybody else involved and how we can help them win. And if we help them win, we have raving fans and our customers and our employees and all the people that we deal with in the middle. And I think
1: that it's a business model that I don't intend to ever change. So the real perspective here from Charles is sometimes it pays massively to get outside of our own heads. If it's not about the problems that we want to solve, but our tribe's problems, whether that's our customers, our team members, hell, even our family or friends' problems, if we can focus on them rather than our own problems, make them the hero of the story, everything else tends to work itself out. There is something very profound to be said for focusing completely on other people's problems. And in fact, it's quite liberating because we realize that the more that we help, the more that we give the more we end up succeeding anyway. And so once we've sharpened our problems, we're ready to apply our life playbook. And this is the bottom of the hourglass. We've had that bottleneck of focus around what we are trying to create value in. And now it's time to open that up to a wide application. So as a business leader running five companies, how does Charles think through the many choices that he has to make? I think
0: playing out the scenarios is really critical. I get on a whiteboard and I start playing out every possible iteration that I can come up with. And when I realize there's hundreds of iterations, I try to boil those down into groups of you know, the categories of these iterations of the possibilities. And then you try to get that down into a, I, I think five to 10 is a good number for the scenarios. You start eating too many scenarios, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. 10 is a good number because then you can look at your percentage very quickly and easily with the outcomes. And so I think the whiteboard's really helpful or,
1: or the visual whiteboard in your head. So if we're stuck for an option or something to pursue, we can very simply condense it down by mapping this out visually somewhere either in our head or on a whiteboard. Because getting all of the options out of this clogged chaos in your brain and actually giving it some structure, however you do that, creates a clearly mapped out set of choices. And what this means practically for our decision making, it's much harder to make decisions if we're relying on our brain's hardware to store all the options we're fallible. Our machines, our brains are 70,000 years old. And unfortunately, our hardware does have some glitches. This is why I think it's important to get it down somewhere else. I prefer getting them down on paper or at the very least mentally grouping them into clusters. As Charles said, one way that you can group your decisions or group your options is by grouping by values. For example, with my weekly planning, I will list out all the potential tasks that I could be doing And then I'll group each task by value. So those values, for me, are monetization, systematization, audience growth, or learning. And then each of those tasks get clustered together. So I will ideally have days solely focused on audience growth or ones solely focused on systematization. But whatever they are, it means that there is less context switching in the day-to-day by giving each day a theme. And remember, the theme of this episode for the Life Playbook is applying a playbook of our very best knowledge to new applications.
0: When we learn big lessons, we then go try to say, hey, this is a big lesson that we've learned. What can we go do on another business or two or three that will really put that lesson into place
1: and be able to monetize that lesson? Charles runs five companies and the hard-won lessons that he's earned all factor into his entrepreneurial playbook. For him, the key theme is applying that knowledge to his other companies. That's where the big benefit of being a serial entrepreneur and for us thinking like a serial entrepreneur comes in. So let's see a practical example of when Charles did this, when he tried to launch his 3D printing company. I believe
0: that I made a critical error with the 3D printing. And that was, I got too excited about the idea and I didn't connect the idea with the customer. So the customer does have a connection there. But if, if you really look at it, for what I was trying to do, the connection to the customer was pretty far from the idea. There's a lot of development that needed to happen before there was income, which is fine if you have unlimited resources and you can fund this. So it's being funded and it's fine, but it's not returning nearly as quickly because I allowed too much gap between the idea and the customer. And so that's something that was a massive lesson. I think I'll probably apply this lesson in every single business I ever do again. So you know, however many $100,000 that lesson cost me, is probably worth 10 times the amount because now I utilize that when I'm doing any other business. And now the last couple that we've started, it's very specifically tuned to make sure that that idea can get to market and be very close to the customer and the distance between that idea and the customer paying us money is very
1: short. Notice how Charles took the lesson, the hard-earned lesson of not connecting the idea to the customer quick enough and applied it to the way his other ventures are run. This is just like Rebecca Romero from last week's episode, applying her hard-won knowledge of discipline, training, and mental fortitude that she needed to win Olympic silver in the rowing in Athens in 2004 to go on to another sport and to go on and win Olympic gold in the track cycling at Beijing 2008. This is the versatility of scars. This lesson may have cost Charles hundreds of thousands in the short term, But that lesson, he's earned it now. It goes into his life playbook. And that can be applied to any other business that he decides to start in the future. For both Rebecca and Charles, it was this scarred knowledge that is most valuable to build into their playbook. But let's be real for a second. Having the lesson is one thing. Measuring it is quite another. So how does Charles practically measure the application? what is the runway necessary to put this in
0: front of a customer to where they have an option to buy it and i need that runway to be pretty short and that's the thing that we're focusing on now is investing and developing businesses where the runway from our idea to pitching to the customer is very short maybe even weeks
1: so notice there how he boils down his lesson to a tangible metric charles is measuring success by the time it takes for his idea to get in front of the customer and crosses that with the amount of capital the amount of runway they need to be able to get it there in the first place. And this idea of breaking things down goes far beyond entrepreneurship. It applies to anyone creating anything. Quite simply, it lowers the barrier to creation. And that's because every success that we see can be broken down. We always see the success at the top, our role models, our idols, our mentors, but without acknowledging the years it took them, So painstakingly, backbreakingly, climb the mountain. When we think about this principle for ourselves, it means two things to me. Firstly, measure our lessons somehow. It's not good enough to just have the lessons in our playbook. We need to be able to apply them, and the numbers don't lie. Whether this is the time taken to bring something to life, the amount of words that you write per day, the amount of watercolor paintings that you share per week, whatever it might be, Have a metric to track your growth. And of course, the second thing is to lower that barrier. Don't place any expectations upon you. Have something that is very easily attainable. As the Chinese provocative artist Ai Weiwei says, my favorite word, it's act. Or as Charles puts it nicely, I think that now is better than perfect. And that's the beauty of this approach because Charles knows that he's not perfect. And for our final segment today, let's learn how he complements his flaws, or specifically, I should say, with who.
0: Alicia has been the most significant blessing in my life, bar none, and to be associated with her is really just a privilege and a pleasure every day. She's the most exceptional human that I've ever met, which is why I married her. And an element that I think is overarching across anything that we do, especially in business, is we never agree to disagree. I think that's really been critically important. You know, a lot of couples are like, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. So if she wants to do it, okay, fine. We'll just we'll just have to do it her way. The problem is at some point that comes back in the person's brain. Well, you know, I kind of let her have her way there. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And if you start doing that with business decisions, that's dangerous. And so what we have determined that we'll do in our relationship is when those things come up that are important, that do have bearing on how our future plays out, that we won't make a decision until we're both on the same page. And sometimes that's a two-minute discussion, and sometimes it's a two-week discussion. So There's an item that we're working through right now that we we just have not quite lined up on how we see it going and how it needs to proceed. And so we're going to keep working through it. We're going to allow logic to have the upper hand here. We're going to keep getting more data until we can make what
1: we believe is a decision together. There's one huge benefit to this approach, making sure that personal decisions are resolved aka we never agree to disagree, ensures that there will always be a solution that's met most of the time. Because let's be real, if you're making a joint decision with someone, you need to make sure that not only are they happy, but you're happy too. Both of you deserve that. And it's the exact same in a personal relationship as it is for dealing with a team, as it is to talking with a close friend. We need to make sure we're on the same page. Push to get to a decision instead of striving for consensus. But there's an important caveat here. Because how you do one thing is how you do everything. As Charles said, not pushing for consensus sets a dangerous precedent in business. And for Charles and Alicia, that matters because they don't just make decisions personally. My wife and I are business partners. We do everything together
0: and we're each other's kind of sounding boards for those scenarios. So we have to regularly check in. Hey, those other four or five things that you're doing, Are they taking away from the one or two or three businesses that are really the core of the money makers at the moment that are providing all of the profit that we're using to then roll into these other businesses that will continue to grow?
1: It's incredibly hard for us to see things for how they really are. We are all player one in our own games at the center of our unique universes, holding the controllers that dictate our fate. We need a helicopter view provided by someone else acting as our sounding board to keep us sane and keep us on track. And the benefit of these sounding boards is that they can answer which task is actually most important today, but also what's important for us to work on across the long term. Now, we might intuitively understand the value of having relationships and perspectives in our lives, but let's actually break down exactly why this happens. The importance of sounding boards can be explained by Solomon's Paradox. And this is very simply that we often give better advice to others than we take for ourselves. When we're making decisions for ourselves, we look at all the criteria. Of course, we do. We have all the information. But when we give advice to other people, we zoom in on the one to three most important factors. We intuitively realize that these other people don't need to know all the information. We just need to give them the best options we have in front of them. And this is where not knowing everything becomes. An advantage. The organizational psychologist Adam Grant says we have too much information about ourselves to make good decisions. And this is why getting clear outside perspectives who don't have all the information, who only know the absolute essentials for our situation and can give us according advice, matters so much. The other big benefit of the sounding board for Charles is that he has a partner who doesn't just help him see things clearly but that complements his weaknesses. My brain's ability to utilize data and go grab the data necessary for decisions is
0: a bit of a blessing and a curse. So it's very beneficial in some regards, but at the same time, I often do not take into account the human element. And in whatever business you're in, you're in the people business. And if you don't take into account the human element, it can definitely hurt your ability to relate to people. And so I rely on, my wife is amazing, at relating to people and understanding the human element. So from that standpoint, we're able to kind of offset that. I'm really good at the logic. She's good at logic, but she's unbelievable at the human element. So I I would have to preface it by saying I'm definitely not better um, with this whole data thing. I I think it's a a curse to some degree. So make sure that if you're good at the human element or good at the data element, that you find somebody that can get those other parts and pieces to that decision-making puzzle.
1: Right now, I'm co-authoring an essay called The System of Stories with a good friend of mine, Zoe Langdon. Zoe is far more technical than I'll ever be. He's a better developer than I'll ever be, and I know it. And it's because we sit in our separate domains that we can create something even more powerful together. We're not trying to be each other's blessing. Knowing how your brain is wired and accepting your limitations is powerful. Because for Charles to function, At the top of his ability, he relies on his wife, Alicia, and his business partner, and she, similarly, relies on him. Together, they are stronger than the sum of their parts. So let's review what we've learned from Charles today. The first big idea is to sharpen the problems that we solve. By keeping his core problems simple and succinct, Charles' brain can go to work finding solutions to complete his decision-making puzzle of the day. And as his story shows us, perhaps the ultimate solution comes from taking total responsibility for our actions and discarding all excuses, although you might need a scar or two to realize that for yourself. The second big idea is to not limit our playbook's application. Treating the writing of our life playbook as a lifelong exercise means we can be happy learning hard lessons that could cost us in the short term, but have immense value to our future projects. And third and finally is the importance of sounding boards. Using Solomon's paradox, we know that others will almost always see our problems clearer than we can. And so never agreeing to disagree, both personally and professionally, as Charles showed us, points to the fact that how you do one thing is how you do everything.
0: You have to take ego completely out of it because it's not about my idea or her idea. It's about the right
1: idea, the best idea, the idea that moves us forward the fastest. It's not about being right, but finding the right answer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. If you're enjoying the season so far, you can subscribe over on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows for new episodes every Tuesday. If you want to keep up with Charles's journey, you can follow him on LinkedIn. His name is Charles Covey, surname spelled C-O-V-E-Y. Our big focus this season is making subject matter as relevant and practically useful to you as possible. Was there something you really enjoyed or something you disagree with or would like to see more of? Whatever it is, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me directly at ben at or on Twitter at Ben Bradbury underscore. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday for the next episode of Subject Matter.